This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com slash ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com slash ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal, but I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. Listen, there, in your headset, it's a MIDI. It's an Og Vorbis. No, it's iFanboy's Talksplode with writer Glenn Weldon of Superman, the unauthorized biography. Hey, 
Hey, everybody. Paul Montgomery here. You're listening to iFanboys Talk Splode, the podcast where I talk to talented people I'd like to be friends with and you people eavesdrop after the fact, you creeps. Joining me on this episode from NPR.org and the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, Mr. Glenn Weldon. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Um, your new book is called Superman, an Unauthorized Biography. Um, you could have gone safe with this. You could have gone fluffy and got the big guy to sign off on everything. But you went, you went saucy. You went the Cat Grant route. Uh-huh. Um, you went unauthorized. What does this alien have to hide? Exactly. I'm, I'm digging under the skin, as it were, the invulnerable skin. Did you, did you dig up anything particularly dirty about Superman? Did you find anything the, that shocked you? Uh, well, what, what shocked me? I mean, uh, I, knew I, I knew I had a soft spot of affection for the dude. Uh, all my life, I've been drawing the, uh, the Superman S in Conestoga notebooks and Trapper Keepers. <laughs> but um, but what, I've, what I found about this, I mean, I started writing this thing because uh, actually an editor at Wiley approached me to do it. It was sort of work for hire. And I, I thought, sure, I could do this. But uh, but it's as I started, I realized what I was right, basically doing was writing a Wikipedia entry, like a 350-page Wikipedia entry, and that just felt uh, kind of redundant because you know we have Wikipedia, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, what I tried to do was go through it and, and see what was the stuff that recurs, uh, what are the core elements of his character, what's the stuff that changes, and what I found was that most everything we think we know about him. Uh, especially those po- people who say he's boring, he's too powerful, he's uh, just a big blue boy scout. Right. Everything about him that we come to associate with him has changed. The only thing that's not changed about him since Action Comics number one was his uh, was his is his motivation. If you think about it, it's it's really the thing that is automatic about him. He's a hero. So um, what does hero mean? It means a he uh, he puts the needs of others over those of himself, and b he doesn't give up. Everything else changes. That stays the same. So that's the classic hero motivation, and it's one thing that people point to when they say, look, this guy is boring because he, he's not troubled. He's not a darkly troubled loner. He's, he's just a guy who automatically does what's good. Uh, but, you know, did you read that thing that uh, Greg Rucka wrote uh, about his worries that the Man I of Steel movie was going to be uh, PG-13? He, he yeah. said it exactly, which is that the people who question the kind of uh, reflexive heroism that's at the core of a character like Superman, are actually questioning the heroism that exists, that we know exists in the world. The people who ran to help people after the Boston bombing without thinking of themselves, that's, that's real. That means something, and that comes from some place. And what Superman tries to do is he tries to say, uh, here's, here's what this looks like. He's, he's better than us. That's the whole deal. That's in his name. Um, and he is a very flattering mirror to to us he makes us look good we, in his eyes we are better than we are uh so we don't we don't identify with him per se he, he's not you know he's not worried about his aunt may's medicine he's not uh agonizing over his girlfriend he is uh a, he's an ideal he's an icon and he exists to kind of point us in a direction to say here's here's what the world could be like if we all uh acted if we all did the right thing because it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think we can all sort of relate to having that argument, whether it was in, you know, at recess or in the office break room, who's better, Superman or Batman. Sure. And that kind of stuff comes up a lot. The relatability. Um, is it too boring that he's too powerful? 
did, were you always a Superman guy? Or if you're anything like me, like I kind of, I came into being a Superman fan. I was, as a kid, I thought I liked Batman because he's cooler, he's edgier. And Superman was maybe kind of boring back then to me. But um, as I've grown older and um, identified who the real heroes are in, in the real world and, and like come to appreciate, you know, the selflessness that, you know, like that my dad exemplifies. And I say like, my dad is, is my real world superhero because he puts everyone else ahead of himself and, um, and thinks about, you know, his family first and, and, uh, not himself. So I, I, I see that in, in Superman. Um, so were you always a Superman guy? Yeah, I was pretty much. I mean, he, he's some of my earliest uh, memories. My, uh, Mom made me a Superman cape. My grandmother tried to make me a Superman costume out of a very thick uh, gray wool uh, sweatshirt, sweatsuit, whatever. Okay. Uh, and she dyed it blue, kind of came out grayish blue, but it was enough for me. She tried. Um, and yeah, but I did go through a big time Batman phase. I went through a huge Marvel phase in my teenager, teenage years when I really thought that the, the DC characters were... Uh, flat and boring, and the Marvel characters had personalities. But then as you grow older, you, I started to realize that the Marvel characters that I thought had personalities actually had personality disorders. And because, of course, that's, that's comics, right? It's bigger than life. It's operatic, so you, you exaggerate everything. And then I, I got to realize that I, I think I'd find Spider-Man really annoying. I think, I think uh, Johnny Storm's kind of a jerk. Um, so, so it's not always about like who, which heroes you want to hang out with, but there is a primal importance and a, and a sort of a primal pull to Superman. I mean, he was the first that means something. That means he created his own archetype. Uh, his he, his uh, costume is the three primary colors. I also think that means something. From a, from a symbolic level, from an iconic level, he has this appeal that uh, I've always felt, but sometimes I haven't actually allowed myself to feel it. If someone had mentioned Superman to you prior to embarking on this this journey of research and, and, and typing away into the wee hours of the morning, um, what kind of images flashed through your mind? Uh, for me, it would definitely have been Christopher Reeve, because uh, I was 10 years old when uh, Superman the movie came out, and that just got its hooks into me. If you think about it, though, it's a very odd film. Uh, the first half is basically hagiography. Hey, it's basically this epic sweep, this, uh, these uh, long, empty vistas of, of both uh, Krypton and, and Kansas. Then it becomes a screwball comedy. Yes. And then it becomes a 70s disaster film. It's just this weird three-part structure where, that doesn't, that, where the tone shifts all over the damn place. But, man, it, it got me. That myth-making uh, of the first uh, third of the film, which many friends of mine, including uh, NPR's own Linda Holmes, just don't get. They're like, get to the fireworks factory already. What, what, what is this world making? What is this? Oh, no, no. That's the, the best part. It is the best part. It is this because that's where we're getting all, you know, people can overstate this idea that uh, comics and, and these characters are our modern myths. It can be overstated because I think it does oversimplify things a bit. But man, it's true. That, that grabs you, especially if you're a young kid, in a very uh, primal way place <laughs> it makes me feel like a young kid when i watch it so it's the it's the goosebumps part and that's the score there like even more than the the superman theme itself uh john williams theme is is the um is the krypton theme and uh you know when christopher reeve inha inhabited the role uh what he brought that i i argue in the book nobody did really before him was this thing that the 70s desperately needed which was he projected calmness 
He was a guy who could manage to look incredibly comfortable in his skin when he was wearing blue tights. Uh, <laughs> so, and they paired him with Margot Kidder's Lois Lane, who kind of represented the neurotic 70s, who was up until the point in the film where she actually comes to, to meet him, she's basically a frayed nerve. She's, she's, uh, she's smoking. She's got that uh, whiskey, whiskey-voiced uh, huskiness to her. That's very, very neurotic 70s. But then once they come together, uh, they, they, come, they create this basic, uh, very essential pair. And she calms down and he just projects calmness. The other Supermans, uh, Supermen before him were about uh, taking care of business. Uh, George Reeves, uh, he didn't really modulate his Clark Kent versus his Superman. They were both like uh, ER surgeons. They were basically like, let's get this done. Mm. Uh, but what, what Reeves brought was a essential stillness is, is tries to make it to Zen. It's not exactly. I, I'm, talk, I'm talking about a calmness, a we're all going to be okay vibe that really, uh, really was matched to the time perfectly. You feel safe with that Superman. You really do, even though, uh, you know, if you see his uh, screen tests, I'm sure you have, mm -hmm. uh, he is sweating like a stuck pig. <laughs> you, you are so unused to seeing the Superman costume with these giant pit stains, but he managed to, even in that scene uh, where, he ha where he has to convey the transition, he has to convey the transition between uh, Clark Kent and Superman, and he does so uh, simply by squaring his shoulders. Uh, that's, that's the essential thing that the film had to capture. Uh, that's the thing that Donner was very worried about, uh, finding an actor who could do that. That's the thing that when they made the radio show, uh, up to the point when they actually uh, cast Bud Collier, they were convinced that they needed to cast two different actors. Uh, but it was Bud Collier in the radio show uh, who could actually go from a high tenor to a kind of a deep, basso profundo baritone um, with just like a couple hops down the verbal staircase. You do like, mid-sentence too. He just looks like a job for Superman. Exactly. And what that did was it did something that the comics couldn't do, which is capture this notion of transformation. Uh, you could see a guy changing his clothes, but what Kalia brought to it was this idea of it, it's, it's almost childhood into adolescence or adolescence into manhood. This, you, you, it kind of gets distilled in like a three seconds. And that's the thing that really grabbed people. Um, we're big fans of, of Bruce Timm and DC animation around, around these parts. Um, so much so that we often have the conversation, um, that question whether comics are even the ideal medium for superhero stories at all. Um, for readers just getting into the game now too, it's, um, that, that might even be more the case because there's sort of a, there's, there's maybe a lack of great Superman comics coming out month to month. Yeah. Um, so guess what I'm asking is. Is the Broadway musical the real sanctuary for Superman? <laughs> you know, I did. Uh, they actually restaged it up in New York uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago or so, uh, only for six performances. And I went back to that, that Broadway musical, um, and I had, you know, I'd listened to the cast album several times, of course, and I had interviewed people who had actually seen it. They had very dim memories of it, but I did... <laughs> Uh, interview people who had actually seen it in, you know, when it was aired in, in 66, when it was on Broadway in 66. And of course, I have seen the terrible, the abysmal uh, television adaptation from 1975. Now, my only experience with that is from the Look Up in the Sky documentary that coincided yeah, sure. with um, with Superman Returns. Yep. Um, 
it looks interesting. Um, should we let's should we go to that section of the book um, and take a look at some of the lyric here? Sure. Uh, it's a satisfying feeling when you hang up your cape to know that you've averted murder, larceny, and rape. Catchy. Catchy. That's from Doing Good. Yeah. That's um, from the song, the big thing, the, the uh, what, what I guess you would call the I wish number, the, the number that starts the show. Uh, you know, I've got to tell you, uh, there is something to seeing people inhabit a role on stage uh, that really takes what felt to me, uh, when, you, when you read those lyrics out, it's, it, it's cringeworthy, but there is something about doing it in a way that is tongue-in-cheek, but not campy. Tongue-in-cheek, but not satirizing it for the sake of satirizing. Uh, having fun with it. It's really, it's really earnest, um, but you can, you can tell they know what's going on there. Um, yeah. And you, you put it in, in the proper context, too. This was 66, as you said. So this is around. This is the same time as as the Adam West Batman series. Yeah, the Adam West Batman series kind of snuck up on them. I mean, uh, the Adam West series premiered in January, and they opened on Broadway in March. Uh, so they're, they're, uh, some of the writers and some of the actors in the in the production feel that the reason it didn't succeed was because people were tired of this uh, campy uh, Batman thing. Uh, it doesn't really hold up if you look at it, though, because the, the campy Batman thing was a craze that lasted for years. Uh, and people didn't get really sick of it for another two years or so. And they're bringing uh, it back now, this summer. Yeah, and they're totally bringing it back now, All right. Uh, so um, so I, I have a feeling that what actually happened was that, I mean, they did add a song uh, to the end of the show called uh, Zap Pow, I think. Uh, to kind of capture the, the Batman thing. But I think what happened is that it got a reputation as kids' theater. Uh, it got some very good reviews, but it got this reputation as kids' theater, and they, they couldn't shake that. They, were, they kept adding matinees, and people would kind of dismiss it as something they wouldn't see. So it closed after 60-some performances um, and, uh, and then got revived in that 1975 horrible uh, television adaptation, which is just abysmal just don't go looking for it if you haven't seen it it's it will uh it will haunt your waking dreams but they're still staging this you said well they did it briefly yeah okay. uh, and you really see that it's it's a lot of fun i mean one of the things that's fun about it is that they just have people breaking out into uh, the mashed potato and and uh, the watusi and uh, the, the frug with abandon and uh, there's something about seeing very attractive people dancing like that that makes you think, okay, we're here to have fun. We're not here to take this too terribly seriously. It does capture this, the kind of um, earnest cheesiness, the earnest goofiness of the Silver Age Superman, who is my personal favorite Superman. Um, I love that era when you can, you know, Weisinger used to say he, uh, he would go out uh, to the, to, he would go, he would approach his kids and, and the neighborhood children and ask them, what they wanted to see in a Superman comic. And they would tell him, and he would tell his writers to put it in. Um, you got to kind of take some of that with a, a, a grain of two assault. Uh, I'm sure that happened. I don't know exactly if it happened uh, to the extent that he says it did. Makes a good story. But you can certainly see a kid saying, I want Supergirl to have a horse that is also her boyfriend. And then him going, yep, go on, tell me more. <laughs> um, this is probably a good point to talk about. Um, there was a leak. There was, I don't know if you're, if, if you're aware of this or not, um, or if you feel comfortable discussing it, but there was a leak of a, of a phone conversation um, between you, Glenn Weldon, and your editor. Uh -huh. um, 
there was there was sort of this tremendous power struggle um, uh, somewhere in the in the process of of making this book um, related to a thirteen page section. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to comment on that conflict? Well, under the advice of counsel, I won't go into detail, but I can say that my editor and I had a fundamental disagreement on the uh, the uh, on the awesomeness that is crypto, the superdog. Uh, he, his argument, and he was uh, egregiously wrong, but also powerful, uh, is that uh, people didn't need to read 13 pages about Crypto the Superdog. And my argument was, uh, Crypto is awesome, he's a dog in a cape, what more do you need? Uh, so we did cut it back. You know, this, this, this book was originally, uh, I was asked to put, turn in 75,000 words, I turned in 150,000 words, so we did some cutting. It is longer than 75,000, I think it's somewhere in the... 120,000 word area, mm. but lots and lots of stuff. Like it kills me that I, you know, Lori Lemaris gets only a passing mention. Uh, crypto gets sort of um, slighted, I believe. But I do have a Tumblr in which I, I'm trying <laughs> to uh, put a lot of the stuff that didn't get into the actual book and trying to give it life. So I'm trying to turn the Tumblr, uh, glennwilden.tumblr.com, into a visual companion to the book. Um, I, things like uh, crypto and Lori Lemaris and uh, car dropping out, for example, means that was it was a, an effect of uh, the fact that the, I, I didn't want to just do Wikipedia. What I was trying to figure out was what's the through line here? What resonates? What's the thing that uh, I, can, I can use to kind of comment on the time? Because what I was really interested in was not uh, the backstory of the writers or, or the editors or the screenwriters or the directors, but really about how this character is perceived over the years and how that perception changes and what that means about us. It's a, it's, it's a cultural history, and uh, I do try to take into account the, the things that are going on around the comics at the time and the, the films and the, and the television shows, of course. Um, so that means that uh, chasing down every little uh, development in the ever-evolving myth uh, just would kind of lead me to a lot of dead ends. So there is some stuff that just couldn't make it in, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that what, what I left in was there for a reason. I would agree with you that Krypton is, or the crypto is, is very important to, to that story and how we... How we perceive Superman. Um, yeah. Batman has a dog. Batman has had several dogs. Uh, but he doesn't play fetch in outer space with his dog. There is that. There is that. He's too cool for school. Of course he would play fetch. Well, actually, he started off, you know, Crypto was a Superboy story. It's a story of a boy and his dog. And it, it's, a, it's a part and parcel of what happened during the Silver Age, which is all of a sudden these comics started to fill up with emotions. Now, they're very Freudian, very young kid emotions, because that's kind of who they were pitching the stories to, obviously. Uh, but they're very basic emotions like jealousy and, and fear of abandonment and 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 anger, um, choke, sob, lots of uh, lots of lots of regret and uh, sadness as well. So the, what what they started doing was pitching those uh, those stories to very young kids and making uh, the characters kind of reflect the very basic Freudian powerful kid emotions. So you have all these stories, which are basically sitcom plots of uh, somebody does something wildly out of character, and uh, uh, Lois uh, spends the you know the five or six pages of the story 
uh, wondering why Superman hates her or uh, Superman tries to figure out why uh, Lois is, uh, looks like she's uh, killed a guy. It's basically Three's Company with tights. Mm-hmm. There's a very popular blog um, about how Superman was kind of a dick for a while yep. on those covers. Um, do you think that's a fair representation? Do you think we're like, do we need more context than just, should we judge the man by the cover? Yeah. Well, that's it. Uh, what the covers were about was uh, the writers and editors wanting you to pick up the damn book and, and leave through it. I mean, there is a formula to Silver Age storytelling, which is this, the, the formula of farce, of um, mistaken identity, of people trying to uh, intuit motivations, even though they can't, uh, they don't, don't quite know. So, yes, just about all those uh, things on uh, Superman is a dick. Are, are examples of him uh, acting wildly out of character for comic effects. So, yeah, I, I think you could, it's certainly a part of his history. It's a big part of what drove people to buy those comics at a time when superheroes and Superman himself was falling out of favor and uh, people were starting to read more crime comics and cowboy comics and romance comics. But, uh, you know, he, he hung in there, and he hung in there any way he could. Now, this is a, ri- like, what surprised me, this is a really, as you said, you didn't want it to be a Wikipedia entry, an extended Wikipedia entry, but this is still a, a very comprehensive book. You cover a lot of topics, um, but it is concise. Um, it is fun to read. It's, oh. it's the great colorful prose that I enjoy, you know, uh, in, your, in, your, in your Twitter musings each day. Um, but let's talk about just how much material there is. Um, that you had to go through. Uh, so just recently, Action Comics, as well as Superman and Lois Lane, celebrated their 75th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, a few weeks back, Action Comics hit that landmark 20th issue, <laughs> which doesn't seem like a lot for 75 years, but have you read all 20 of those issues over you know, uh, in the 75 years? Believe it or not, uh, yes, I have. I've managed to pour, uh, work my through, th- way through all... Uh, 20 issues of action comics. Yes, as a matter of fact. I Did mean, you have to play catch up at all in, in doing, you know, the research for this book? Like, were I, there any, you know, blind spots? There was one uh, gaping blind spot. But, uh, I mean, I have been reading Superman pretty much all my life. I've, I've gotten uh, just about every, my hands on all the reprints that I, I can. Friends of mine have fairly extensive collections. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there are means online to look for many different things. But, um, but there was a gap, and that's, uh, that was the 90s. I got chased out of comics in the 90s by everything getting all extreme, and it just didn't, wasn't for me. So I had to go back, and that was the real work. <laughs> that was the coal mine experience of this, of this book, was going back and reading some pretty terrible 90s comics um, and trying to fit, you know, the story of Superman into, uh, into the, into the story, kind of contextualize the story of Superman with, uh, the cyber rats and blood strike and all, all these heroes that, uh, I just didn't get. Um, so yeah, so I, that was the thing I had to kind of piece together. What's the, um, what's the wrongest thing that a writer or artist could do to Superman? Well, you know, um, the character of Clark Kent is, engineered to blend in, to not call too much attention to himself, to be the guy that you don't notice. 
He is, that's what he's there for. Uh, so when you give uh, him a mullet, and when you give Superman a mullet and you force Clark Kent from Smallville, Kansas, to wear a ponytail, uh, you were doing it. <laughs> you just don't, really don't understand uh, who the character is. I'm uh, surprised you went with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I know, like, I, I agree with you. I don't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like Clark, but are there more egregious things that people have done to Superman? Well, sure. Or tried uh, to do? Yeah, well, certainly. But, you know, I mean, uh, recently they, they asked Orson Scott Card to write Superman for reasons that I have detailed, uh, extensively. That felt to me like a major misunderstanding of who the character is and what he's for. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's not the first time DC Comics has, uh, has, in my opinion, not understood who the character is and what he's for. It's, we, we fans get disappointed by the things that uh, the creators do over and over again, but we keep coming back for whatever reason. These characters have gotten their hooks into us very young, and uh, it, takes, it takes a lot to chase us out. In my case, it took the 90s and foil covers and the death of Superman and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, in the sixties and seventies, things got really goofy. Um, but I kind of eat that up with a big old spoon. It's the lion heads. And of course, uh, you know, red kryptonite is, if you were a storyteller, red kryptonite is a gift. Red kryptonite <laughs> means you can go nuts uh, you can do whatever the hell you want, and everything goes back to normal by story's end. You have a, you have a, a, a device to to ensure that you can go crazy, but uh, nothing. The status quo doesn't change, and of course, that's the challenge of writing a, any character who's kind of handed down from one set of creators to another over the course of seventy five years. His status quo can't change. But if anything, over the course of uh, researching this book, I mean, I, I've found that. He does reflect the time uh, in, in, in really uh, big ways, uh, depending on, you know, I mean, sometimes they, they try to force change upon him uh, by trying to make him more relevant. Say they want to make him a blogger, for example. Or a TV uh, journalist before that, wasn't it? He was like a TV anchor or reporter. He was. He was a TV journalist, and, he, and they also gave him a swank RV to go uh, <laughs> tour the country and uh, report on, uh, you know, rock festivals, which, you know, not a thing Clark Kent's really doing. Not, not a thing that Clark Kent has the chops for. Uh, but that didn't stop him, uh, and he certainly, certainly did that. In some, and that disconnect, because, you know, in the early 70s and the late 60s, who was still writing him were these kind of, you know, old school cigar chomping dudes who'd been churning out Superman comics because they happened not to be churning out um, ads on Madison Avenue. They just fell into it, uh, and it was a job. But then, you know, in this early 70s and, and certainly throughout the, the rest of, fr from that point on, that's when you started to get people like Marv Wolfman and, uh, and Elliot S. Magan, who were devotees of the character himself and, were, and felt honored to be writing his stories. And that's when things start to change, when some of that really ham-fisted stuff that I happen to adore, like when uh, Superman goes back in time to help Jimmy Olsen start a Beatles craze in <laughs> uh, ancient Judea. Um, you know, I mean, because what was happening is that DC Comics was making references to things that kids liked, and Marvel was actually trying to appeal to kids directly. So you see a real disconnect there between those two, uh, those two approaches to the fans. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, I, they can do, they can throw anything at this character and he'll endure in some form. Uh, everything comes back. The red, the red trunks will be back. Um, the, you know, crypto is back. Uh, he'll go away. He'll come back again. Uh, there's a, there's a kind of eternal return that, that is very, very comforting if you look at it from a wide enough perspective. That's a, that's a current I really appreciated throughout the book and, uh, and especially in the, the last few pages. Um, spoiler, sorry. Um, it's, there's this, this uh, sense of, of, of hope about Superman, and, and uh, I think all Superman fans can, re- can relate to that. And, um, but you, you talk about the character as if he transcends any writers who, who touch him, um, that he can go through these dry spells or the creators go through these dry spells, but then he will, he will bounce back. Um, do you think that started with just a great idea from Jerry and Joe? Um, or was that even beyond them? I think it was a, a really uh, simple, uh, powerful idea that was helped immensely by marketing the hell out of the character. Uh, you know, we can't underestimate, we can't understate, overstate, we can't overstate how much these two guys got dicked over. Um, yeah. uh, we also have to take into account how much work of tireless marketing uh, DC, well, at that point, National Periodicals was doing, uh, just getting toys and, and pajamas and crypto ray guns into, into the stores. Uh, you can't talk about this character without talking about his marketing. He is as much, it's, it's a huge part of who this character is. The other thing that was going on is, you know, originally when Siegel and Schuster were writing him, you know, one of the things I do in the book is I go back and look at those first 12 issues of action comics, those first 12 stories, which caused the sensation, which caused kids across the nation to say, uh, I want the, super, the comic with Superman in it. And if you look at those stories, most of the iconic elements aren't really in place yet. I mean, there's, there's entire issues where he doesn't put on the costume, entire issues where he goes undercover. There's entire issues where he doesn't even fly. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very odd mixture. What he does do is lift people over his head a lot and be really strong. Because what they were doing is saying the, the, the humor, the action, the peel of the stories were taking this character who was very strong and plopping him down in very mundane situations. And that, that disconnect was what they were playing with. What caused the character to take off to really soar, literally, uh, was World War II, when all of a sudden this outlaw character, this outlaw hero, became a patriotic symbol. He kind of helped America kind of localize their anxieties, especially very young American kids at first, uh, uh, about the war to, and by reassuring them that good always triumphs, that uh, we just have to stick with it and, and we'll, uh, we'll beat the Ratsies. And that message started to appeal not just to kids, but to GIs who were devouring his adventures in a big way because they were, of course, they were very portable. You could trade them uh, and they were very easy to carry. Uh, and, you know, the DC Comics poured thousands and thousands of issues of DC Comics overseas uh, every month, uh, especially Superman comics. Um, so that helped cement him. And the point of the book is that he transcends the medium that delivers him to us because now he exists in the planet's cultural consciousness. 
I mean, when I was writing this book, my sweet silver-haired Aunt Faye, 78 years old, um, sweet lady, asked me if I was also going to be writing about General Zod. There's no reason in the world why my, my Aunt Faye should know who the hell General Zod is. <laughs> Uh, and it has nothing to do with the comics. It really doesn't. It, 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 the, when you're talking about the kind of penetration, the kind of way that this, this character and what he stands for saturates the world, we're talking about the television shows and the, and the, the movies in a big way. Uh, um, and those things uh, have given him sort of a wider perspective, have, have elevated him to this character like Sherlock Holmes like Dracula, he's he's bigger than uh, the, the medium that delivered him to us. We don't usually talk about marketing and promotion as being a boon to a story uh, and its and its legacy. We usually think of them as as obstacles, yep. distractions. Um, so it's not that's not the case here. Well, he's he's a character like uh, Dracula, like Sherlock Holmes, who uh, exists as bigger than the idea that birthed him. And that, that uh, you know, it's, the way he gets delivered into the world is, is very, very varied and it's very complicated, but it delivers the basic idea of this character to uh, all levels, all ages, all nationalities, all creeds. Uh, it's a it's a very important part of how something like this happens. And when you're looking at this from the from the cultural perspective, you see how important a thing like the animated series is to uh, establishing what this character is to an entire new generation of people who would never have bothered to look at the the, the film from 1978. That was 20 years ago. Why would we be looking at a film that was 20 years old? So. That leads us into talking about The Man of Steel, a film about which I am cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but one of the things you have to understand is that that film, for better or for worse, is going to define what Superman looks like to an entire generation for years and years to come. The films have the power to shape uh, and, to, and, and to turn people off from a character in a huge, huge way. You see that, uh, you know, Superman 4... The quest for peace effectively ended uh, the character's Hollywood reign, um, deservedly so. That was a terrible film. But, uh, but, but it took years. It took two decades for the, the notion of a Superman film to kind of raise its head again. So it has to be, it has to be kind of generational. Um, yeah. I mean, it's cyclical, obviously. Um, but, you, you know, there's not been a lot of breathing room, not a lot of daylight between 2006's Superman Returns and, and Man of Steel. Um, but I think the cycle is speeding up. I think uh, this, this need, and it's driven by Warner's, it's driven by DC Comics, this need to constantly iterate and iterate. You see it with the amount of crises we've been having lately and flashpoints and New 52s, this constant desire for... We, we, what we need to do is make it accessible. We need to make it accessible to, to new readers. Well, these new readers aren't necessarily showing up in the numbers that, that, uh, have, that DC firmly believes in. And uh, this constant need to update and churn out uh, new origins and new variations of the character, uh, you know, I would argue that 
in the uh, in the nineties, the constant stream of Elseworlds, even though there were some very very good stories there, effectively diluted the Superman brand to the point where uh, it took something like the film to kind of reestablish the the bona fides of the character in the, in the public's mind. I think I think a lot a lot of what you're talking about it goes into you know we have this this constant um, conversation about the like, fan entitlement and. Um, oh ownership over a character um, beyond what uh, you know the publishers or the, the filmmakers bring to us and so we can say things like that's not Superman or that's not my Superman mm-hmm. or you know and maybe part of it is that with DC and with with various publishers and, and filmmakers trying to recreate that and, and reconfigure what Superman is maybe we already know because the origin is so simple. Grant Morrison told it in a page yep. in All-Star Superman. Um, yep. And maybe that's something innate, and it's at least accessible to very young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than more adult characters and, and edgier characters like Batman. Um, I think, you know, Superman is just, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot, you know, it's, 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 it's allegorical, but it's also, it's also biblical in the sense that it, that it is so simple and maybe it's to the detriment of people trying to reintroduce it to the world in a more palatable fashion, because it's by definition different and we already, we don't need it. Yeah. Every time they've rebooted him or retold his origin story, they, they do what, what comics do, which is they update the uh, temporal details. So in the first time we see them, Ma and Pa Kent are driving this kind of car when they find the rocket. And then, you know, 10 years later, they're, they're driving a different kind of car and they're wearing different clothes. It's an attempt to kind of keep the, the, the origin of the story in the perpetual, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, and that's a thing that complicates <laughs> and uh, that, uh, but I would argue that also deepens the, the connection this character has. Yes, it's, it's possible that this constant need to tell and retell is, uh, is diluting the character, but it's also possible that that's kind of what these characters exist to do. That these are stories that we tell ourselves, that they're very powerful, that they're very primal, as you say, it's Moses in the reeds, it's Jesus in the manger, uh, there's something to that story that causes it to get told and retold. Dressing it up in, you know, uh, period detail is a is a distraction because the, the primal appeal of this guy is uh, is very strong. Um, he's, as I say, he's he's an ideal. He's an icon. That means what's what's essential about him is very very simple. Um, and the, the, his weaknesses um, are symbols themselves. I mean, you could. Take a look at what kryptonite is. You could read it as survivor guilt. You could read it as this idea of a very particularly toxic form of nostalgia. You know, when you believe or, or uh, ache for the past too much, you risk uh, destroying the present. Uh, I think, the, as I say, I am, I am confident that this character is going to be around for a good long time. I think he's going to look a lot like uh, what he's always looked like. Uh, I do miss the red trunks, but... Um, at least I like, at least in The Man of Steel, he's not wearing red trunks, so he doesn't have a belt. Can't say that for the comics. He's wearing a belt, but nothing that's holding up precisely nothing. Eh? There are these 
things that will always, to me, feel like, well, that's not Superman to me. That's not Superman to me. Um, but that's kind of what he's for. He, he's, we each have, as I, as I mentioned in the book, we each carry in our heads a very specific idea of what Superman is. Now, the precise uh, ideology of that, of that persona, that, that character that we carry in our heads, varies from person to person. Some people think it look, he looks like George Reeves. Some people think he's more Christopher Reeve or, or uh, Dean Cain, for that matter. Um, but even though the outward appearance might be different, the, what this character stands for is the same. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, so from one big Superman fan to another, uh, thank you for relating this history. Um, I know you've got another book on the way, right? I do. Uh, it's, Can we talk uh, about that? Or sure, absolutely. It's uh, it's a it's it's not quite the same kind of deep dive into one character, uh, although it will <laughs> find a uh, will use one character as the way in. It's basically about the rise of geek culture uh, and um, how I'm going to argue that it was the character of Batman who helped bring it about. Uh, so it's we're going from Superman to Batman. I think I'll, I'll be hitting uh, Matter Eater Lad by. 2080 or something like that. <laughs> this current schedule holds. I think I might be taking a break from the superheroes after this one, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, having a lot of fun with this. Um, and as I say, it's going to be taking kind of a, a wider look at uh, the culture and the changes that have happened and uh, how Batman has informed them and how, how uh, he has informed the culture. Well, greatly look forward to that. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure, Paul. I'm a big fan of uh, iFanboy, have been for years. And that is it for our show this week. I'd like to thank my guest, Glenn Weldon, once again for joining us for a great discussion of Superman. His book, Superman, the Unauthorized Biography, is on sale now, wherever great books are sold. We'll have an Amazon link in the show notes for this podcast. Check him out on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast as well. If you have any questions or comments for us and those along, to contact at ifanboy.com or to me at paul at ifanboy.com. Check out our Pick of the Week podcast each and every week. And I think there's only one appropriate way to close out this podcast. All right, see you next time. Good night, sweet dreams. So sorry to mess up your plans, but now you know. Pow! Don't fool around. Wham! Zow! We're soon.